Today on Never Was a Gamer, Mario becomes yet another victim of our out-of-control cancel culture. Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is the story I tell myself to obfuscate the truth, Dimitri. <laughs> oh no, that's dark. <laughs> what if you're just like a made-up presence that like isn't real, and you're just like another voice that I do on the show? Is this your interpretation of the game? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into that, but today we're talking about braid jonathan blows. obviously <laughs> if you if you didn't if you couldn't tell from that intro jonathan blows braid from 2008 part of our exploration of some games from the indie boom but first i want to talk about something that we just watched yeah now this isn't a news show but i think this piece of news is very relevant for what we're going to talk about today it's relevant to the arc we just watched the first substantial update for this device that was announced, I can't even remember when it was announced because time is just a blur, but I knew it was announced, um, but it's called Playdate. Had had you seen this before? Yes. So I saw just the very quick, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of information about it, but a little yellow handheld thing with uh, some basic Game Boy-ish buttons and a crank. Yeah. So this is a piece of gaming hardware by that's put out by Panic Games, who usually publishes software. And, and yeah, it looks like a miniature Game Boy with an A and B button, a D-pad, and a crank out the side. <laughs> and what's exciting about this is that it's going to be released alongside, I guess, the first season is going to be 24 games. But it has attracted a ton of indie developers, including some names that we've encountered already. Uh, Keita Takahashi is one of them, the creator of Katamari Damashi. Yep. Uh, we just saw it's not going to be in the first batch of games, but in the next batch, Lucas Pope, who did Papers, Please, and Return to the Obra Dinn is going to be making something for it. Zach Gage has something in there? Yeah. The, I, I want one of these things. I'm, I I had sort of been ready to dismiss it as a fun novelty that I'm not going to spend $200 on until we started getting into the list of who has made stuff for this. And who is on board so far also makes me think that there's a good chance that more interesting people will be on board eventually. Yeah. So here's why this is so interesting to me, because near the end of our last episode where we talked about Bastion, mm -hmm. we were talking about how today it just seems so hard f you know, for new indie developers to emerge because now what's expected of indie games is something closer to what a lot of AAA games look like. Like it's it's actually become maybe much harder for indie developers to to get established and to make something that's viable and and well respected because the expectations for what an indie game is is now so high mm -hmm. and you know the lines between indie and AAA quality are are blurring all right. the time. Uh, and so you know, and I think I left that maybe that I was kind of pessimistic in that discussion. I think I left to saying you know indie indie space needs a, a, a shakeup. Mm -hmm. This is a shakeup, right. <laughs> This is giving people limitations. This is where creativity right. flourishes. We're going to give you two buttons, a D-pad, and a freaking crank. And a black and white screen, don't forget. There's only two pixels are black or white. Yeah, and just and make something interesting using a crank. Yeah. I'm so excited for what creative possibilities this might surface, the kinds of games we're going to get, the kinds of experiences we're going to get. 
Yeah, nothing nothing boosts creativity like restrictions and a crank. <laughs> yeah, something something you can touch and move that you can't usually touch and move. It is exciting also that, you know, they didn't show a lot of any of the, you know, 24 games that are going to come out. But I think pretty much everyone that they demoed, they were using the crank. Yeah, I, I mean, if you make something for this and you're not using the crank, what are you doing? <laughs> you got to use the crank. Yeah, it just it also suggests to me that this isn't, you know, this is nobody's recycled idea. Like this is all mm-hmm. built like looking at this system and what it is and different people approaching this same weird collection of tools and saying, what can I do with this? Um, like that's even something different than just like, what's an idea, a simple idea that you had and rattling yeah, around and the so, back. And so I imagine we're going to get a bunch of games that are very well scoped. Right. That explore one central mechanical idea, figure out how to do it with a crank, <laughs> and then move on. And that's those are some of my favorite types of games, right? Like, let's really hone in on one specific idea and and you know push it to its limits and then move on. I also find something refreshing about the idea of being delivered one game, one or two games a week, that you just then it's like there's a low stakesness to that where I feel like they don't have to be striving to be this like transcendent breakthrough thing that is going to be you know change everything about a genre it's like you you can just make a fun interesting thing that somebody has a fun interesting time with and then you know it's allowed to move on like i think that's a positive kind of like transience or disposability where it's just like not trying or needing to aim for like classics it's it's again that contained that contained experience that can just be what it is. Um, yeah, and again, usually when you know when those expectations aren't necessarily there, creativity co- is allowed to flourish a bit more. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited for this thing. It's it's a little pricey, but I kind of want one. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, we'll we'll TBD. But I'm, I'm happy this exists, and I, I I want more things like this to exist in the world. Give yeah. me more cranks and crank likes. Also very fun to see Lucas Pope of Papers, Please, and and Return of the Oberdin pop up and show 10 seconds of gameplay and be like, I don't really know what this is yet. Like putting that on mm-hmm. TV. I have this little slice of something. I'm not really sure where I'm going with this, but I'll let you know. Like that's, I love seeing that. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, was, it was refreshing and I'm glad he has that freedom. But now we need to go back in time to a time... When a lone man wanted to change the game. We have to talk about an extremely serious, extremely classic indie game. <laughs> <laughs> One that did change the landscape of indie games. One that made its creator a lot of money. Joe Blow. <laughs> Can't call him that. <laughs> That's what, like, his name's Jonathan Blow. Not Joseph Blow. I think you- he'd be John Blow. I guess. We're talking about Braid. We're talking. <laughs> um, yeah, a game of actual, you know, historical import, and and I I think we do want to emphasize that this game is is really is really significant, which is why which is why we picked it. This is the earliest of the three games we're going to be looking at. So last time we were talking about Bastion, we talked about how the Xbox Xbox 360 in particular and the Xbox Live Arcade service really became a place for indie games to flourish on home consoles. And Braid was really at the forefront of that. It was an early Xbox Live Arcade game. It was featured in their first summer of arcade. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a game that was doing things that, 
you know, that was challenging what games were, what what could be possible in a game. It was trying to engage with philosophical ideas in a way that a lot of other games weren't at the time. And it it just got a lot of momentum behind it and, and, and really blew up and got a lot of people talking. So as you mentioned, Braid is by and large the uh, the product of one designer. Here we're talking again about this, you know, the classic idea of the solo independent designer mm-hmm. versus last time with um, Bastion, you know, a, a team of people who, who came out of AAA development jobs. In this case, John Lumblow is a is more of a, your, your classic like indie designer who never really had you know a major position at a major game company. Did kind of journeyman programming here and there, but was always tinkering on his own stuff. Before Braid was released, he was always known as a thinker about games. He was known for running the experimental design workshop every year at GDC. Uh, he was known for his conference talks where he critiqued mainstream game development. And so he's one of these people who I think, you know, talked to big game about everything that was wrong with the industry, uh, but for the longest time wasn't putting anything out, you know, is not <laughs> sure, you know, showing what an alternate path could actually be or what it might look like. And 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 then he he did with with Braid. I guess before we get any further, do you want to just explain what this game is for people who might not have played or seen Braid? So this is a uh, puzzle platformer where you play as this guy, Tim, and the main thing that's special about it is you're solving puzzles by sort of manipulating time in different ways. So Tim can rewind time and, and in different levels, he has sort of different twists on that power. And so you're going through these spaces, collecting these puzzle pieces as as you go, um, and then building out this bigger picture of, of a story about what's going on with Tim. You missed the most important part. He's wearing a little suit. He is, yeah, he's, he's, is that the most important part? Yeah, he's wearing a little suit. I'm trying to yes and you, but I don't <laughs> think that's the most important part. So, so do you want to give, we'll get into the narrative in a bit, but just for right now, do you want to give the broad strokes of the narrative? Sure. So Tim starts out and he's had this sort of relationship fall apart. And over the course of the, of the game, he's pursuing this, this princess who's off in a castle. He doesn't know exactly where it is, but she's sort of his like far off goal. Uh, and over the course of looking for her, you know, he's exploring, you know, how their relationship ended. He's going back to his childhood home and and reflecting on his place in the world. Um, and this is all sort of told through these sets of uh, narrative storybook kind of things that you read at the start of each new world. It's told kind of through vignettes. It's a little bit abstract. You know, there's, there's... a little poetical. <laughs> yeah, or at least trying to be. It, you know, there's there's a little reading, then there's metaphorical readings that you can that we can layer on sure. top of it that we'll that we'll get into. But yeah, basically, it's it's a twist on, or at least at at first seems like it's going to be a twist on the classic hero who has to chase the princess. You know, platformer stories. Michelle mentioned it's playing a lot with with Mario tropes. But I bring up the narrative here because for Jonathan Blow, the relationship between narrative and g- gameplay was always really important. It was kind of a central feature of a lot of his talks, especially in the lead up to Braid, probably as he was thinking about what he was going to do with Braid. As we've talked about before with other people at this time, you know, we've talked about um, Clint Hawking's idea of ludonarrative dissonance uh, a long time ago. But he was one of these people who, you know, in the mid to late, you know, 2000s, like 2007, so I was really thinking about how games tell stories, how they make meaning. It was at a time, you know, when a lot of, I think, big developers were thinking that they were finally getting storytelling right, basically by copying Hollywood and by incorporating a lot of cutscenes. And Jonathan Blow was one of these spate of people who argued that, no, that's actually not the types of stories that games are equipped to tell. Instead, you know, the story should emerge out of the gameplay. 
The story shouldn't be something pasted on the game. Games and stories, at least as we tend to think of stories for Jonathan Blower, are, are, are somewhat incompatible. Instead, you know, you should really figure out how to get meaning to emerge out of exploring and interacting with the rules of the game, because that's what the medium does. So, you know, he's one of the people right. who's, and he's not alone in this. You know, there's there's a lot of people kind of thinking about this at, at the time. And, you know, I think what's really interesting about when this game emerged, and I think helped, you know, give it maybe a lift that it needed to become so popular, is that Braid comes out at the same time that you have the emergence of the gaming blogosphere and podcast scene. Okay. So you have a lot of these places online where people, um, you know, developers and amateurs, you know, critics, are talking much more thoughtfully about games, you know, thinking much more thoughtfully about them than you get from a, a common magazine. Like, we're not in the Dave Halverson review score anymore of, like, graphics, sound, fun factor. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, it's the emergence of this new kind of criticism that's more thoughtful, more philosophical, thinking about games as a medium, kind of criticism that thinks about games, you know, as, as an art form, what they do specifically. And devs become much more open to talking about these topics as well. Hmm. And so... Braid and Jonathan Blow become early parts of these of these ongoing discussions. Okay. How long had GDC been going on for at that point? Like what's because I know that is sort of a and it has an important um role in in this sort of slice of the community. So I'm just curious about what the the state of GDC was at that point. Yeah, GDC had been going on in some form since the late eighties. Cool. Um, but I but I think you're right that you know that that's always a space where developers would talk and like I said that's where Blow kind of got his start you know it was kind of making his name being a little soapbox boy on <laughs> <laughs> yeah but also hosting this um experimental games workshop right which I think is 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 pretty significant you know I I mean if you remember right the experimental gameplay workshop is is kind of what got Katamari Damashi shown off in right in America right like so it. I, I don't know if he, I don't think he was in charge of it at the time or running it at the time, but you know, there, there is this relationship there where, you know, it is a space for, for new ideas, but also as we talked about before with games easier to distribute, especially on consoles now with more people being open to thinking about games in different ways, you know, it, it really was this perfect, the conditions were perfect and ripe for someone like Jonathan Blow to come along and get a lot of traction for right. his game to get a lot of traction and actually make some pretty serious change. And, you know, I think as you saw, too, as you were kind of looking into this game, the Jonathan Blow as a personality is also part of the story of Braid very yes. much. Yes, um, and, you know, And that's something that we talked about last time, too. And, and I think it affects somebody like Jonathan Blow even more than it affects a team like Supergiant, where in this new space, these people who are not necessarily used to being in the spotlight have to come and speak for their game and are put under a certain kind of media scrutiny and, you know, don't necessarily have professional media training. Mm -hmm. You know, Jonathan Blow gets gets a, gets in a bit of trouble sometimes, puts his, <laughs> I don't know if he'd say he put his foot in his mouth, but other people would interpret him as having put his foot in his mouth a couple of times. Yeah, he has a vibe. Yeah, he's one of those people who I, like, I, I always oscillate when I listen to him speak because on the one hand, he's incredibly, clearly incredibly smart and thoughtful. Right. Thinks really strongly about, you know, about games, I think has a lot of great insights. But there's just always like this undercurrent of pretension. Just not quite likable <laughs> at the same time. But also sometimes is like it it, it just oscillates, you know? Yeah, I, yeah he, I, I, I think I do he's know. just, a, you know, he's just a, he's just a complex guy <laughs> who, you know, is not made to be, you know, in front of a camera for an hour and a half, just going off the cuff about, you know, he's not a media personality. Right. That, yeah, that's not his, that's not his skill set. 
I will say the him that I saw in interviews, I do feel the presence of that person in Braid. Mm. <laughs> for better and for worse. Yeah, I think this is really, a, you know, an auteur's game. Yes, in- I was gonna, I was waiting until we got to the A word for, for <laughs> yeah. Joe Blow. He's very much indie auteur. Kind of in the classic sense. And, you know, this is, he pretty much did everything uh, in this game. He didn't do the art. The art is... Okay, I was going to ask about this because it seems like a lot for one guy. Yeah, the art's done by this comic artist, David Hellman. And, it, it, you know, it's beautiful art. But, you know, the idea is the programming. That's primarily Jonathan Blow. The music is all licensed music. Oh. Okay. So he didn't do the music okay. either. But, you know, but the core of the game, the idea is it's it, he is very much in, in the game. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's something else that he was kind of renowned for after it released, you know, where people would be writing about it on these blogs, you know, interpreting it. And he was kind of renowned for finding where those spaces were. Popping in, reading people's interpretations, being like, uh, that's not it. And then like piecing out. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I think sometimes like really hurt that. I don't know. He sometimes appeared to be hurt, like annoyed and hurt at the same time that, you know, people weren't getting it the way he was hoping they would or that there wasn't this mind meld between creator and player. <laughs> he doesn't want people having their fun little interpretive games with with this game no and i don't know you know if he thought that it was a failure of the player or a failure of him as a communicator that there wasn't this merging but it was this really interesting moment of you know this artist coming to terms with the fact that once his work is out in the world it is no longer his right you know it's people's to make of it what they will and that that's not always going to line up with what you were hoping they would get from it i'm just haunted by <laughs> this clip of jonathan blow where he's watching soldier boy show his friend braid and he's just saying like it's for when you drink it's for when you get high there's no point to it you just jump on shit but look at this if you're about to die you and like rewind (laughs) and like does this like clowny demo and just hard cut to jonathan blow looking like the loneliest man in the universe like just heartbreaking (laughs) it's like oh my god you have to yeah you know like you have to let people see what they see but I understand why that's hard. But also, like, that's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this was this was kind of new for gaming at the time in a lot of ways. You know, seeing somebody really put themselves in an artwork and then seeing in real time how they react to people's responses. And, you know, most of the responses were glowing. I'm for sure. This game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even then, you know, uh, Jonathan Blow's like, they're you know, people are giving this nines and tens, but it when I read the review, they're not getting it. They're they're giving it for the wrong reasons. And you know, that's bothering him. Right. So not even the, you know, not even the scores can make him happy. It just I I just the whole release of this is fascinating, I think. But let's take a quick break, because I think we've talked a lot about, you know, the context of this game and Jonathan Blow as a as a creator. Uh, but let's actually take a break and then come back and talk about the game itself. We'll be right back.
And we're back. So what did you know about Braid before you turned it on? Um, okay, so the first time or the this time? Because I actually... Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, like, so way back in the day, um, when I was picking up games, uh, when I was just starting to get back into games and getting the humble indie bundles, Braid is one of the games that I got in a bundle, and I know that I popped it open for a second, knowing nothing about it except that I knew the name Braid, so I had heard it somewhere enough that I was like, oh, this is a thing. Um, and I think I played around with it. You know what? I soldier boyed it. <laughs> I like went in, played around, did a couple of levels, and then probably like got to one puzzle that I didn't immediately know how to solve and was like, I'm good because there was other stuff in the bundle that I really like wanted to get to at yeah. the time. What One thing I'm curious about, especially because, yeah, you picked it up pretty early on in your return to games, if you will. Um because it's a game that frames itself so much as like a meta commentary on games, did you find that it was hard to get into in that sense that <laughs> you didn't really like, did you know what you were even looking at? Uh, I mean, so I think if I had played the entire thing, I mean, I knew enough, I would have got the Mario references, you know, but I think, I think so much was lost on me at that period um, because I just didn't know every new thing I played at, at this period I was just like, oh, this must be what games are like now. Like, I just was receiving everything with a self-evidence mm -hmm. that made me not appreciate when things actually were a huge leap forward. I mean, I had things I liked more and less, but it's not the same as being someone who really understands the space and then encounters something new. Right. And because this is a game that's trying to announce itself as this is not what games are like now. Yeah, this, this is, is a flag planted in in the, the dirt. Yeah, or at least it's trying to be. But, but also as you said, so intimately tied to a history of games, or at mm -hmm. least a, a certain genre, right? Yeah. So you turn on the game and, you know, as you mentioned, like, you know, the Mario references are almost immediate. So yeah. what, do, what do you make of those? Like, it, was it, how did you deal with that familiarity? Let's say the second time. Okay, like coming back to it this time. I mean, I think it, so I think my honest answer here is I think it, it helped tell the, the, general story of this game so well that it made me less interested in some of the finer narrative details of what do you mean by that well so as soon as you as soon as i realize okay i'm seeing these little things which i've been calling meatballs but clearly are meant to be sort of goomba ish they look like meatballs in this game yeah they're not they're not exactly goombas but yeah they're the goomba in context in. you can understand them as as such and you know, you get to the end of the first level and you get to basically a, a castle where the flag goes up and something that looks kind of like a, a boxy yoshi comes out and says your princess is in another cat like right, he plays the total, i get it yeah you know um and so like i think just i have enough of an understanding of like okay we're talking about this basic framework we're talking about um guy persisting doggedly through all these obstacles in pursuit of a princess that is also sort of like an abstracted sort of idea is like a non entity in a sense is just like a, a sure yeah standard bear for you know we've heard we all yeah we know what this this conversation is um and so honestly i think that got me like 90 percent of where i needed to go for the purpose of this game <laughs> in so, terms of the story i guess i'm wondering then like though mechanically because what happens is right at first it presents itself as a very mario-esque platformer yep right and like you said like clear clear echoes but then reveals that it's actually, you know, you always are doing some platforming, but in essence, it's kind of the opposite of a platformer. 
because you don't need to have that, you know, platforming perfection because you can rewind time. That's, you know, that's what you learn in your first, in the first level. Yeah. As you're moving through, you know, you get hit by one of these Goombas. And if you're someone who's expecting Mario, you expect, okay, you're going to die at that point, but you don't. Time just stands still. And then you're cued to hit a button that just reverses time. Mm-hmm. No, this, and then you know you realize, okay, this game is not about kind of perfectly jumping through it and getting to the end. It's it's about something else, and that something else, at least the most obvious thing, is about collecting these puzzle pieces throughout. Right, and I think funny enough, like the point where I think I bounced off it the first time was when I realized it was a puzzle game and not just a platformer. <laughs> so pretty early, honestly, quite early. Uh, and I mean, you know, I approach it this time with a much different understanding of like with a little bit of familiarity of you know, a bit of the impact that Braid had, I know much more about. Right. And and just to be clear, right, these are, you're collecting these puzzle pieces, but in case you haven't played Braid, this isn't like a collectible in a platformer where right. your platform, your prowess gets you to the collectibles. This is, you are solving pretty intricate puzzles that take advantage of different, you know, the, the different time-based mechanics of the levels, which yeah. we'll, we'll get into. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the puzzle pieces are kind of not, they're not optional off the beaten path things they're the core thing that you are doing in this game is getting these puzzle pieces so i mean in terms of coming back to it i mean obviously i knew sort of what it looked like i knew a little bit about the framing um i sort of had it in my head from the start that this is one that is about your the main character kind of being the villain in the end like i sort of knew oh you didn't know that i i knew so i didn't know the specifics of how that works out but i i had picked up vaguely from conversations that there's some of that in this game so you know if this time as i was watching you play i realized okay if if you're going to be into the puzzles and the puzzles weren't going to make you bounce off this time the one thing that might would be the narrative vignettes in between the levels i, I could tell you weren't responding big time super well to those yeah um this has the most like guy from your college writing class vibe i think of any game i have ever played it's like so I my theory about this is that this game would actually be much stronger if there were no words in it whatsoever. If you just cut out literally 100% of the text that appears in this game and just let it be your like Tim going on his way. I mean, the writing does try to justify and give some kind of, you know, narrative justification to the mechanics of each world, which would be lost if there was no writing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, okay, this is going to sound bad, but I think that's a subtlety that I would trade in exchange for, like, unloading what I feel is sort of the, like, albatross around this game's neck, which is this very, like, heavy-handed, to me, very sophomoric, um, very kind of, like, eye-roll-inducing approach to these vignettes like I there wasn't one of them that I liked there wasn't one of them that I thought was like pretty well written and landed with me the way I think it was meant to um I also think there's a chance that so I both think these might have landed differently in 2013 than today I also think that if this game was released today people would have been much harsher on this element of it than they than they were in the moment I mean people were critical of the writing style when it when it came out for okay. sure Okay. Yeah, and John Blow has kind of tried to defend it, you know. He's on purpose. Yeah, I mean, like one thing he mentions is that you know I think he says at the beginning that the princess was captured by an evil, a horrible and evil monster. He's like, a lot of people say that I shouldn't use evil and horrible, but they mean very different things, and I use those words intentionally, and every word I chose was very intentional, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, 
But I, I, you know, I think we, I think we can agree that you know, prose is not his strong suit, right? Which is completely fair, right? He clearly has a bunch of other talents. Absolutely. This- uh, but I think, I think for me, and again, maybe you know, getting bringing on a writer to to help smooth things out would have would have been beneficial. But I do kind of like having the setup that gives context to the mechanics and the different iterations of what you can do with time in in each level, like each. Each world asks you, the player, to think about your relationship with time, both in game and in real life, slightly differently. And I, I think the narrative tries to get you to to make those jumps. Yeah, I think um, I think my big holdup with this is I feel that it's so so. This is so one thing about you, so <laughs> too, is that you do like if if a pro style rubs you the wrong way, oh, yeah. you can't give yourself over to. You know the gist of it, like this to is the true. gist of a story, this the gist of the narrative. True. Like I've seen you before take, you know, books that would have like a decent story, but you just can't get to you can't get to the story part because you actually took a pencil and started marking up the prose. Got insane. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree. This is definitely this is a thing. There's like occasionally pro styles that just itch me. Like I just <laughs> it actually makes me feel crazy. And this unfortunately was one of them. So. I'm I'm very willing to take responsibility for the part of this that is a me thing or <laughs> game thing. But okay. Okay. Help me figure out what to think about this. So I think the reason why I especially can't get on board with what you just said about, you know, we like giving some context to uh, you know, each of the different things that you're doing with manipulating time in each of these different worlds, is to me it's so transparent that we came up with the different fun things we could do with time in a puzzle first. And then we're like, (laughs) what do we, hmm, how do we, how do we make this a thing? Now, I feel ambivalent about that because in a game, it kind of should be like that. And that, and actually this is, this is in some of his, you know, talks, this is what he would say is that you should come up with your mechanics first and then figure out what story supports the mechanics rather than vice versa. I don't think that's fundamentally Mm -hmm. wrong. I just think... It something about it is like a little bit too transparent, and you know, in in terms of like objecting to the idea of narratives being pasted on games, mm-hmm. um, I have some words about a couple of, the, <laughs> of these chapters. But I mean that, like, I guess the thing that I want to say is like that vibe was very alienating for me. But apart from that, the rest of this game is basically pretty clever puzzles. Yeah, so maybe let's talk about the puzzles then, and we can and we can go through each world. But just in general, your experience of playing the game, solving the puzzles, the types of puzzles they are, you know, there are kind of different types of puzzle games. Some are very much, you know, there's a situation and, you know, the player needs to kind of react mm-hmm. to the situation and that's how the puzzle is solved. Whereas there are other types of puzzles, which are in, the ones in this game, where it's very much a process of, can you figure out what the designer intended you to figure out? You know, can you yes. get in the mind of the puzzle maker? Yeah. And that's this type type of puzzle. And I got to tell you, that's my type of puzzle. <laughs> and I think it's because, you know, my history with point and click adventures. Sure. It's that same Which mindset. Which is pure, pure that dynamic. Exactly. Yeah. And so I love that type of puzzle. I love trying to get into the head of the person who is making... Right. The game. What were they seeing here? Like, Especially, like, of course, there's always a line they can cross where it becomes too obtuse. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think this game ever quite gets there. They're actually quite logical puzzles. There's not a lot. There's some times where I think it cheats, which we'll get to. There's a couple. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, me personally, I actually love this type of adventure game style puzzle. Uh, okay. So 
I less so. Um, I think, okay, I have a divide with this game that I think I've had with with a couple of games we've we've played for the show before, but not too frequently, where I I think I really like and respect the design a lot of this. I think they are smartly constructed and you know, they're overwhelmingly not boring and repetitive. Mm-hmm. They introduce something new. Like there's I, I can look at this game with my analytical brain and think this is a very well put together puzzle platformer. Ask me if I enjoyed playing it. I know you didn't. No, not in the slightest. Um I think um so much of this felt like a little bit of trial and error, like experimenting with this to see like, okay, what can I do? And then like, okay, so there has to be something with that. And then going over here and experiment, like I, there was multiple times in this, in this game where, and partially this is because I think I had a bit of a disconnect with some of the time mechanics, which we can also talk about where I would like get a solution and be like, I don't understand why that worked. And I don't, I don't ever want to feel that in a puzzle game. Yeah. And I, I guess that's not my experience of it. So sure. for me, what this game is, and I think the reason I really like it and the reason why I like Jonathan Blow's follow of The Witness even more is because the way he designs puzzles are very much, they're very much figure out what the rule set of this world is. Sure. And that's, that's what the puzzle is. And so there's little clues throughout. And I think he's very good at making you encounter these clues and teaching you slowly what the rules are usually and then he puts a twist on them or you realize that oh what i thought was the rule isn't quite the rule so i have to shift my mindset of what that rule was but now that i've done that now i can figure it out and i mean i i think you know the i think like the mario inspiration runs really deep in this game even to the point where he uses you know the the exact same kind of design philosophy that say mario one uses to teach you the basic mechanics of platforming i think mm-hmm. he does the same thing where he teaches you the basic mechanics of each different rule set of the different worlds. yeah like basically every world starts with a level called the pit that is just one tiny room with a big pit in the middle that will have like one goomba meatball just doing something that lets you figure out what the mechanic is that's being introduced yeah, like here. you know in one one in mario one one um you know you're walking along and the one of the first things you do is you encounter this goomba you know moving towards you and, you know, if you don't figure out that you have to jump, you die. Right. And, and you know, it kind of uses the same the same philosophy here where the game basically puts you in a situation that forces you to figure out the mechanic. Mm-hmm. So I don't, you know, so I never, when I played this, I never got that frustration because I think the game did a really good job of incrementally kind of forcing you to figure out what you need to know in order to progress. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm again, I think I, I think something about me just did not, um, did not like meld with with some of the time stuff in this game. But one other thing that also was, you know, talking about the the sort of um, tension between this being a platformer and being a puzzle game is I think the times when I got the most frustrated was actually when I had in my head solved the puzzle. I know what I need to do. I have to do this and then this and then I'm going to bounce off this guy and go up there. And the thing that I'm getting stuck on is being able to physically do it with okay. platforming. Yeah, that that checks out i think and those are i think the most frustrating kinds of puzzles when you figure it out but you just can't implement yeah. the strategy that you know work yeah and i think the worst version of that is when you think you figured it out can't implement it so you think you must be wrong yes when actually you were right the first time. yes absolutely yeah so so again that's like if the point is which i think the point is the puzzles then i don't want to be stuck on feeling like i'm doing clumsy 
fiddly platforming shit that just isn't coming together right so i mean part of this i think is you know i, I think is fair in the game but one thing i also noticed when you were playing is that, that i was bad at the platforming and that you didn't make use of the rewind <laughs> yeah true because <laughs> there are moments in this game where you really do have to do almost pixel perfect like really fiddly platforming yeah but because you can rewind pretty much frame by frame you can set yourself up perfectly yeah. Um, but often you forgot that you could rewind and do that. Like, you know, like sometimes sometimes it takes, you know, 10, 10 you know, rewinds and tries and just readjusting yeah. to, to line up a perfect jump so you can get to a, a platform perfectly. Yeah. And you need to use rewind to do that. And I noticed that you'd sometimes forget that that was. Yeah. You often had to prompt me to be like, why aren't you rewinding? Why are you running back all the way? Oh, you could also just. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like recycle. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think one thing that I noticed that you seemed much more comfortable with than I ever got was that little feel like I found it so difficult if you're if you're if you've jumped in a big arc towards an, an enemy that also is in an arc with its own momentum and because you have played platformers before you know how to time that so you have collision but it goes wrong if you're rewinding just like a little bit you're you're you know, potentially restarting time at points where both of you were like already in the air, for example. And sometimes you have to make adjustments like that. And without being able to see the momentum of both of those objects moving towards each other, I found it really hard to make fine adjustments like this without, you know, taking things all the way back to, you know, before either of us have jumped. And there mm -hmm. are puzzles where that is not what you, like, you can't really do it like that. Um, like there's fully one where you have to jump twice off the same guy. And so you mm -hmm. have to be doing this little, these little adjustments. And I just like, for some reason, as soon as they stop moving, my brain like loses all track mm. of where they are in their, in their trajectory towards each other. And just like my platforming mm. intelligence is just gone. And I think for me, this is uh, one of those times when the actual narrative helps me justify those moments mm. because I think for me when I when I put those moments because I agree they can be frustrating and they can take a lot longer than you want when you put those moments in the context of this game being about like one person's fiddly obsessions yeah you know what sure and you know like one of the thematic undertones is that you know like Tim's obsessions with his work and his ultimate goals and kind of missing the forest for the trees yeah and you know, like just trying to perfect this one thing, getting it right without thinking about the the larger consequences of his actions. And then when the game makes me be that fiddly for something that is ultimately, you know, I'm, I'm spending time on something that is inconsequential yeah. <laughs> to line up a jump. You know, I, I, I think there you get kind of this melding of the gameplay and the narrative in a way that helps justify the frustration. I think, yeah, I think that's um, fair. I think yeah. that's fair. For the same reason, again, like why I think that the fact that these puzzles are all, you know, get into the minds of the creator also works with the type of game that it is. Right, right. You know, if it was a game about, if the game was something, was somehow about, you know, choice and freedom, mm -hmm. having such restrictive puzzles would not work. Yeah. Um, but but in a game that's really about personal obsession, it makes sense. You kind of have to get into the mind of the of the person. But yeah, maybe let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll actually move through world by world and talk about some specific puzzles and the ways that the game changes our relationship to time as we move between the worlds. We'll be right back.
Okay, so now let's really dig into the different worlds and the different puzzle mechanics that Braid is engaging with. So you actually start Braid in World 2. Yep. Ooh, mystery. Oh, what's going on? Mystery off the bat. We'll get back to World 1 at the end. But World 2 is just your basic, no introductory world. So the only mechanic at play there is your rewind mechanic. It's really trying to get you comfortable with that. Vanilla Braid. Yeah. And what I really like about this world is that, you know, it sets up a bunch of puzzles, but... You know, and you're going through and there, there are different like puzzle rooms, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there might be two or three pieces per room. What I really appreciate is that later worlds pick up on rooms from this first one. Yeah. But pretty much ask you to, you know, to solve the same puzzle, but with a different rule set attached. And I, I, I really thought that that was clever. I really like that they were using this to set up some of the future puzzles and they did come back to that. All of which changed them substantially also. Like, you know, this is not trivial stuff. They, mm-hmm. They're very different puzzles to solve just with the same physical layout. But you know this is this is the most straightforward world. You're just using your rewind as as much as you can. So, were there any standout puzzles here? The only one. So this is pretty basic uh, platforming. So it's, just, it's a lot of it is just getting a feel for the jump physics and the rewinding and that stuff. Yeah, and like but, reorienting your brain to the fact that you yeah. can actually rewind. Yeah. So my favorite one by far is the puzzle that you're collecting puzzle pieces for. Um, actually appears in one place in this world. Right. So okay. Yes, yeah, so you are. You're correct. You're collecting puzzle pieces, but then. Within each world and outside, there's an actual puzzle that you need to put together to yeah. actually complete the world. Using you, the pieces that you found. So Yeah, it's a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, you know, will give you some kind of insight into the story. Yeah. There's a painting, yeah. Um, so there's one puzzle on here where in, in this, the, the picture that the puzzle is making, there's a guy reaching for a bottle of wine or whatever that's like on a, a little platform thing. And... What you eventually have to notice is that it looks the same as the platforms that you have been jumping on on the way. And so you have to rearrange the puzzle in where it is in the world to put that platform at the right level where you can use it to cross a gap. So to me, that is a very creative sort of literalization of something that like is sort of abstracted in the game. I just that, you know, when I thought of when I realized what I had to do, it was like, clever well you know it, it got surprising. a golf clap yeah well here's here's my thing about that one um i i agree that it's incredibly clever and surprising and it's one of those that when you figure it out you're like oh how did i not see that but you're you know that's the one you're stumped on from the first world yep. for sure but it has nothing to do with the time mechanic yeah Th- that no <laughs> i'm like so what no the whole the whole point is that the puzzles are supposed to this melding of gameplay and and mechanics and story and it's about the time manipulation and then yet to make the challenging puzzles you do something that is kind of outside of that scope I, like in a vacuum i really like these puzzles as a as a piece of art <laughs> get them out of my game <laughs> i mean i guess i'm just not that hung up on it and also you know this is the first world there's yes. there's all, like I said, vanilla build of your braid powers. Yeah. So let's move to world three. Okay. Um, so this one, the the thing that the fancy new thing is there are some objects in this world that will be glittering green. And if they're glittering green, it means they're not affected by your rewind powers. Mm-hmm. So they will continue on whatever they're doing. If, if uh, a cloud is drifting through the sky and it's glittery green it will continue moving on its path even if you rewind everything else that's not glittering 
So the the sort of preamble to this, the the narrative gloss, this this chapter is called Time and Mystery. And it's sort of about being drawn towards mystery at the expense of like a known good. Like it's about leaving a relationship behind to go look for something else. Um, so the best I can figure with this is that the concept is that some part of time is irreversible and from the point where something will always be disjointed if you try to make things go backwards when not everything, like some things will always go forwards. Right. Yeah. I think like the philosophical idea here at play is just that, you know, that sometimes yeah, as, as human beings, we try to relive the past or fix the past and obsess about the past. But then, you know, people or objects around us are unaffected by that. They're always moving forward. Yeah. It, this is like a moment when I I feel extra let down by the sort of narrative aesthetic of this game, because this is touching on themes that I really connect with. I mm. mean, I talked about this with Rux in our Bastion episode, which was two right, weeks right. back, um, about how the reason I didn't trust Rux is because I don't trust anyone who thinks that you can undo things that have been because done. You're you're glowing green. You're glowing green right there's now. Only things only move forward. I don't. I there's yeah. So this is this is stuff that really should speak to me, and I just I couldn't connect with that level of it. Uh, in the in the really like deeply felt way that I wanted to, um, and I mean sometimes when you get into the puzzles, the puzzles just feel like puzzles, right? That oh yeah, you, you don't really think about what are, what is this saying about the nature articulation, of articulation? <laughs> uh, what's the nature of time? And yeah, like and that's fine. I also don't like I don't need every every grain of sand in this game to be expressive no. of the big. Theme. And I mean at a mechanical level, the fact that some objects are unaffected by the rewind actually does create some really interesting conundrums. So yeah. what were some of your favorite puzzles in, in this section? My actually my favorite was this is the first world where you encounter like the mini boss that's that's in this game, which is like a little sort of gremlin meatball devil monster that scoots back and forth across the floor. And you have to drop these chandeliers on him from the top of the screen. And so he's sparkly green. So he his damage is persistent. So you have to figure out, oh if I rewind, I'll get the chandeliers back up here so I can reuse them, but he will still have taken his damage. And so, you know, he's lobbing fireballs at you. It just, again, was like a clever implementation of this thing that made sense with so many of the the types of momentum the game had with the sort of Mario-ness of it, with um, the implementation of of a bunch of stuff you've already been doing, having to have your wits about you enough to notice that he's glowing green and figure out what to do. I, I just thought this was a really fun... I wasn't expecting it. Um, and it's a really fun implementation of of this. And it's probably telling that this is one of the less puzzly puzzles. I was going to say, I'm, re- I was really, I'm really surprised that you like this one that's really just like an act, like the action puzzle. Like one of the... <laughs> like where you're actually... You're, you know, you're using the you're using the time mechanics, but it's really... You're really fighting a boss actively. Yeah. Which, that surprises me that that was one of your favorite. I had a good time. Yeah. For me, there there are a few in this one that I that I really, really like. Um one that I really love is a puzzle where, okay, there's there's a gap that you can't get across and there's a puzzle piece on the other side of the gap. Mm-hmm. But above you is a bridge. And so you realize, okay, you probably need to go, you know, climb up this ladder, go across this bridge. But here's the, here's the problem is that half the bridge can kind of extend or contract. Right. And you can flip a switch to to make it do so. But the problem is that if the bridge piece is extended, you can cross the bridge, but then it's over the puzzle piece. You can't actually drop down into the gap to get the puzzle piece. But if it's contracted, 
the part that's contracted blocks you from climbing up the ladder. Right. So you're just kind of stuck and you're wondering, like, how can I, how is this even physically possible? And what you have to realize that you have to do is that you have to extend the bridge, climb up, go stand on it, wait a few seconds, come back, flip the switch to contract the bridge, and then rewind time. And because the bridge is glowing green, it's unaffected by the time rewind. So your now body rewinds in time back to the point where you are standing on the bridge. Where it used to be. Where it used to be, but now you're just standing over air, which when you let go, plops you onto the puzzle piece. Yep. And like this idea of, yeah, this this object that is no longer persistent. I don't know. I just really love that puzzle. And it took me so long to figure it out. And it's one <laughs> of those that's like the second you get it, it makes so much sense. And, yeah. And it's so satisfying when you do figure it out. But yeah, I, I love that one. And there's another one in this section I really liked. Um, uh, there's this section where there's these cannons and they're they're just firing these these shots. Yep. And you have to climb up these ladders to get this puzzle piece, but the cannon the cannon shots are moving so fast that it's impossible for you to actually climb up the ladders without getting hit. You know, you wonder what you what you need to do. And this one, it's actually not apparent on the screen where the puzzle piece is. In this case, you actually have to walk back towards you know the sort towards the original cannon, the source of the shots. And on your way, you realize that there's this other cannon there that's glowing green, and it's kind of pointed down at a diagonal, and it's shooting kind of towards the ground. What you have to do is manipulate time so that the the bullets from both cannons are colliding, creating enough of a gap between the shots that you're able to climb the ladder. Because they're taking each other out. You're yeah. basically shooting down shots from this cannon that yeah. we're getting in your way. And yeah. the reason I really like this puzzle is because just I accidentally figured it out just by rewinding, like just by how I was rewinding and trying out to climb the ladders, I got the timing right. And then suddenly I was able to make the climb. Yeah. And I remember you, you saw me do it. You're like, how can you make that? How can you well, get up there? Because I was so frustrated because I had been fiddling with this for quite a while and had eventually handed over the controller to be like, do you, what do you, what am I, what am I missing here? Yeah. And you just played with it for 0.4 seconds and got this big gap and we're like, why don't you just go in the gap? And I was like, what? How? Yeah. And what so, happened? So maybe this wasn't a great, because maybe it's not the best puzzle because you can luck into the solution. But then it was this process of having to retrace my steps to figure out what I did to solve it, which nope. is kind of really interesting to me. I agree. It's a satisfying answer and a, and a good puzzle. It's just that's like also, I remember my, my felt sense of being frustrated and feeling <laughs> like you are good at this game and I am not being reinforced <laughs> by that just like stroke of luck. <laughs> so those for me were the strongest puzzles of World 3, but were there any that you didn't like? Yes. Okay. This is one of my least favorite moments in the entire game. One of the moments when I was maddest. So there's one. The I think it's in the final room that you that you are in. You have to um, climb up and around over this huge like lattice contraption with all these different cannons pointed at different directions, firing fireballs, spinning meatball guys at you. Everything is happening. So much is happening. Oh my god, and. You're trying to get at a puzzle piece that is, you eventually realize, has been closed off by a, 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 a platform piece that started gradually moving as soon as you entered this room and you just failed to get there. There's no way to get there fast enough before it blocks off the, the access to this puzzle piece. So 
And it baits you there also with a lever that you go in assuming will open this thing and let you get the pulse piece. It does not. It does something completely different. After a whole bunch of playing around with this, what you have to notice, what this game wants you to notice with no prompting is that this, this, there's like a platform thing that raises in, in the middle of all this chaos that you can stand on and it is glowing green. So I looked at that for a while and I thought through, okay, so if I rewind time at this point, that platform won't move, but you know, when I try to do it, I'm zipping all over the place, all the, like everything else is rewinding. And so it's not helping me. What you eventually have to notice is that there's little white sparkles rising up off the platform, which you've never seen before. And it turns out the solution to this puzzle is that if you are standing on that platform, you also are unaffected by your rewinding time. So basically what you can do is stand on that platform, just hold rewind, for like the duration of the entire time you've been in this puzzle room. And eventually that thing that was blocking the puzzle piece will rewind back to where it was and you can go get it. So A, this is not a puzzle. This is noticing a thing and then just standing there and rewinding until a thing is open. B, the thing is like not at all signified well enough. It looks like it's like raindrops or something bouncing off the surface of mm-hmm. like it's very visually indistinct, I would say. I do not feel that it's I mean, I'm sure there's like, oh, you wanna you wanna have your hand held and introduce of it. Like, no. I'm not saying that I agree with this. This is horseshit. <laughs> and it's like once you've it's the whole puzzle is just figuring out that thing that if you stand on this it will also somehow extend and protect you from winding time. And that and that's the thing it's when the game is so good otherwise explaining the rules to you and like giving you yeah. clues, meaningful clues. Building fairly towards complexity. Yeah, yeah, something like this really just comes out of nowhere and slaps you in the face and feels bad. I was mad. Yeah, if this happened like Boogerman, yeah. sure because you expect that game This would be Boogerman's to- best moment. <laughs> You, know, you expect those games to not be thoughtful. Yeah. But in a game that's otherwise really thoughtful to have a moment like this, yeah. it's, a, it's a little aggravating. I, I don't respect it. So that's World 3. And then we get to World 4, which has a very unique mechanic. Yeah, so unique that it drove me the most insane of anything. <laughs> so this one, in so you still have access to your rewind. But the basic thing here is it's about the relationship between time and place or space. So for this one... Whenever you are walking to the right or moving to the right, all the enemies move in a way that normally would be like forward in time. And if you walk to the left, they reverse on their path. Yeah. Time moves forward and you move forward. Yeah. Time moves backward when you move backward. Yeah. This drove me fully nuts because <laughs> this leans into all the all the platformer unhappiness that I had because suddenly you're controlling 90% of the movement of things on the screen with your own movement as opposed to with the time mechanic or based on preset cycles of when things move. So this is by far the world that I had the most trouble with. It's by far the one where I had the most instances of I know what I need to do and I just can't get it to work. And I don't know if I have a favorite puzzle in this one. Oh, they drove me big. Man. Wow. Um, I like this world, actually, because it has a bunch of puzzles that are recreations of old puzzles. Yeah. But now you have to figure out how to do them when when your space and time are intertwined. So that you're controlling time by your position in space. Yeah. So even ones that were easy before now become pretty challenging and make you rethink how you're going to solve them. 
For example, there's one where there's a series of enemies just on stacked platforms. So there's two enemies on one level, two enemies on the level above that, two enemies on the level above that. You know, and the goal is just to kill all the enemies. That becomes very challenging when they respawn, basically, you know, because they go back in time whenever you move to the left. Yeah. Because in order to kill them, you have to go up a ladder on the right, run all the way across to the left to go up another ladder, run all the way across to the right to go up another ladder. And so it's forcing you to go in both directions. Yep. And so you have to figure out how you can do this in one consistent time flow. Yeah. Um, it's it's a lot to wrap your head around, but I, I, I kind of liked it. Yeah. No, I, I do. Again, I appreciate this from a design. I, like, I understand why it's good. I didn't like it. <laughs> okay. We can, let's just move on to World 5. So World 5 actually has my favorite variation on the mechanic in the oh, game. Oh, okay. This was my favorite and the one that I think I had the most fun with, apart from just like vanilla braid. Um, it's called Time and Decision. Um, and so the, the sort of narrative frame is about he's been with this woman who's never understood the impulses that drove him, never quite felt the intensity that over time chiseled lines into his face. You know how chicks don't get it. Anyway, um, so this is this is the the mechanic of this is that boy, this is gonna be hard to explain. If you rewind time back for whatever period for five seconds, when you let go and time starts moving forward again, a little ghost version of you will reperform the action that you just rewound from. So basically what this means in practice is that you can like choreograph or like script a little ghost you to do something, rewind back to a certain point in time, and then have ghost you still continue to go on and do that while current you is free to go do something else. Um, And so it's almost like in a way you can duplicate yourself, but it has to be, you really have to have your plan. Like this one I think I liked also because so much of the game of this is like, really looking at how everything works and being like, okay, I'm going to execute this entire movement that is what I want my guy to do. Now, I'm going to wait here for this amount of time. Now I'm going to flip the switch. Okay, now I'm going to rewind so I know what the timing of my ghost is going to do. In the time before my ghost gets and operates that switch, I'm going to run over here. I'm going to open up this thing. for You know what I mean? You like it because there's a tactical element. Yes, because you have to actually like deeply understand and plan what you're doing. It's the opposite of the of the fiddly platformy mm-hmm. that doesn't work that well puzzle. So these are the ones that, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Some of them I still got very stuck on and very frustrated about, but this one over overwhelmingly, I was like, A, this is cool. B, this is hard. C, I understand this. <laughs> and D, it's put to really good use in a lot of these. I think there's a lot of strong puzzles in this section. So what's your what's your favorite? So, I mean, it's not the most genius puzzle in here, but one that I thought was like playful and actually funny was um, at one point you have to choreograph your ghost to run around this big block to like the opposite side and lure this like bunny enemy to come chase it and draw it off to that side so that real you can sneak in behind the bunny and get like a key and a ladder. And I don't know, that's not, you know, like, is that the most sophisticated puzzle design in the world? No. But it's like a cute, fun idea that I, again, had that experience where like I, I half jokingly said to myself, oh, do I have to get my ghost to lure this guy out? And then like, yes, that is what you have to do. <laughs> it's just like a sticky, like slapstick kind of distract him and get his stuff kind of maneuver. Yeah. My favorite, which is also my least favorite, is, is kind of similar. It's 
the one where you have to get this key across the gap and the gap oh, yeah. is way too big for you to jump across and you know you're thinking how can you how can you get across and basically what you have to do is you have to get your ghost you know your doppelganger to grab the key and and try to jump across and then you have to go back to the other side of the of the gap and time it so that as he's jumping across you jump across and you meet each other kind of in the middle yeah. and you grab the key from him yeah. which is such a cool idea and you know such a great puzzle the reason why it's also my least favorite is because this is one of the ones where you figured out that you had to do that immediately um had really had trouble executing because it gets a bit fiddly and then thought oh maybe that's not what i yeah. have to do and that's that just kind of uh, that's like frustrating and kind of just sad because it's just a bummer. <laughs> you know, you realize you have to do this really kind of fun and cool thing, and then you just gave up on that, yeah. even though that is what you had to do. But yeah, yeah, as a puzzle, great, great idea. Yeah. Okay, world six, the last of the full worlds. Yeah. So this one is called hesitance. So in in this one, you have this thing that we're calling the ring, where um, you basically. <laughs> okay. Um where basically you can post this create like a bubble, basically a time bubble in a certain spot uh, around you where it slows everything almost to a halt that's passing through the center of that bubble. So you can like put a bubble where, you know, a cannon is firing and that will slow down the launch of things out of the cannon and you can leave and go off and do other Things, for example, using the slowed down, like in the space allowed yeah. by the slowed down cannon. To, to be honest, I found this a little anticlimactic for where it is in the game. Like yeah. So close to the end because slowing down time seems so much less interesting and common than all of these other mechanics and these other implementations. So when I got here, I was kind of disappointed that that's what it was. You know, this is silly, but I did not enjoy the feel of having to go collect and replace my my time bubbles over and over again because it slows you down. It also slows you down as you're going through. And so every time you realize your bubble is in the wrong place or you have to go collect it, you can't... It's not like you can just... Um, Rewind time and move back really fast? Oh, my God, you can. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> this whole time whenever because you can't you can't like collapse the bubble from wherever you are like if you leave it on the left side of the screen you have to go back to where it is to collect it this whole time i was running back there taking forever and then having to slowly get to the middle of it it takes so long and it's if so I annoying could, I could rewind it was so really not oh my god the premise of this game oh no okay this is the most defeated i have ever felt about anything related to this show this is so grim what just happened so there are some good puzzles in this section i'm moving on holy shit um we'll be back with a new co-host in the next episode what the hell um yeah one of the puzzles i really liked here it's <laughs> One we yeah, have to, go ahead. Because there's one where you have to go up a series of ladders and with cannons firing at you to get a key on the other side. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, and getting the key is really easy, but getting back is hard since you can't outrun the cannons. Uh, you can't outrun the cannon fire when you're going in that direction and with the key. So what you eventually figure out that you have to do 
is you have to drop your ring on this moving platform, hit a switch that it descends as you do, affecting the cannons as you go. It's, again, another one that seems so obvious once you figure it out, but in the moment, you're wondering what you can do. The reason I really like this one is because you know your options are limited because after you get the key, you're just in this really small, confined space. You can see that you have access to your ring. You have access to a lever that moves the platform, and that's basically There's no other path. Yeah, it's like this kind of closed-room puzzle. And, you know, these are always the most satisfying puzzles for me. You know, when you see all your available options, so there's nothing, you know, there's nothing sneaky about it. Um, when the options are relatively limited, but it still takes you a while to figure out what you have to do. To me, that's like the perfect puzzle. And it's so hard to to make those not too easy when, you know, when all the options are available to you. So that one I really liked because it actually took me a while to figure it out. And then, you know, you feel that, uh, you feel that satisfying feeling of when you figure out a puzzle. I wouldn't know. <laughs> Um, Actually, I did figure that one out. <laughs> yeah, you did. Um, so those are the six worlds. Can I just say, I feel genuinely messed up. But <laughs> like... Okay, continue. So those are the six worlds, or or five of the six worlds. And then once you finish world six and, and fill out the jigsaw puzzle, once you've collected all those puzzle pieces, you open world one. Where you get Whoa. where you get some insight into the story, yep. And so it has a few rooms, but I think the one we want to talk about is the last room that really has this the big the big revelation, the big twist at the end. Yeah. So um, you uh, you finally see the princess, um, and basically the the course of this level, you've all all your fancy tricks have been taken away. You're back to just vanilla braid. Um, which I guess makes sense because in chronology, this one should come first before you get all that other stuff. Um, and you basically just do like a relatively challenging platforming section where you basically are running through a a path of obstacles. That's the bottom 80% of the screen. And the princess is running along the top 20% of the screen. Yeah. And she's running away from... Uh, what a, a knight who has right who ostensibly is you know the the monster yeah that was mentioned earlier right yeah. the monster that's taken the princess yeah. she's trying to run away from him so at multiple points you know she's trapped and you have to hit a lever to let her go or she has to hit a lever that changes something on on your section so you're sort of working together to like get each other through this whole thing and then at the very end she climbs these stairs and ends up like in what is clearly like her house. And you sort of jump up around and end up like basically standing on like her balcony outside her bedroom. And at this point, everything stops, like everything just freezes. Um, And what you eventually have to do is start because what else can you do? You start rewinding. And if you just hold rewind through effectively the entire level, as it reverses, you can see it played out very clearly that... There's a whole the narrative frame at the start of this is all about how time flows backwards in this space. And Tim, your character, is flowing in the wrong direction compared to everything else that is happening. So as you're reversing this whole thing, you can see it played out very clearly that actually what's happening here in the correct flow of time is that you are you're basically standing outside the princess's bedroom and she starts running away from you and you are actually chasing her. And when you see how all the things that you had opened up for each other plays in reverse. She is like closing off avenues for your character to get to her. And then in the end, she has this little dialogue that plays out with, with the knight where he clearly is saving her and takes her away from you. 
And so you gradually realize that like Tim was very much the the aggressor and like the um the 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 bad guy in this snare. Finally, I'm the bad guy. Um, so this to me is a very impressive sequence. The staging of it is very, very impressive. This is an awfully clever application of this mechanic. Um, and I I like and respect this as the sort of narrative conclusion of this story very, very hmm. much. Um, done with no text. I mean, except for a little help, like Right. Yeah. This is this is really a great marriage between mechanics and storytelling. Yeah. But you know, and where literally by using the time mechanic, you see the story in a completely different way, right? Yeah. Like your your position to it. Your position your positionality in relation to the story in relation to the characters is completely flipped. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree. And you can take this story literally as a story about this deteriorating relationship. Some people have read it as, you know, an allegory for the atomic bomb, which that's it, a lot. Yeah. It, but I mean, there are clues that it, 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 they put together a pretty convincing case, you know, and there are a lot of different ways that people interpreted this. There's actually, if you really want to put some time into this, there are some seven hidden stars in the game that are incredibly well hidden. Whoa, I did not see one of those. You pretty much have to. I think you have kind of have to look it up to figure out where to get them. And then you can unlock a different ending that even adds a little bit more credence possibly to the atomic bomb reading. Oh, but I think at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're not really going to, you know, poke and prod at this narrative at the end of the day. I think what the big takeaway is, is that this is one of these games and one of the few games at the moment that actually had people having these discussions, right, you know, right, right. having these interpretive discussions, regardless of whether Jonathan Blow liked them or not, or agreed with them or not. The fact is that people are having them and, yeah. That was kind of that was unique, especially in a game of this genre. You know, people would have there'd be, you know, very literary games like a Planescape Torment or certain RPGs where people would talk about the story. But to be talking about and trying to interpret a puzzle platformer yeah. was like unheard of. And thinking about the the marriage of um, of mechanics and, and narrative, again, was kind of unheard of at the time. So the fact that people even had these discussions. There's enough there to warrant these discussions. Yeah, I is think itself, is, yeah. Yeah, is itself a win for the game, regardless of what you think about the narrative and regardless of whether your interpretation is the same as Jonathan Blow's and he's sad or not. <laughs> uh, so before we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts on Braid? Yes. I almost called it Blow. <laughs> oh my God. They could have called it Blow. Yeah, uh, my final thought, you made me so angry while I was playing this game. So here's a thing that I learned. When I am just fiddling around trying to figure out what's going on with a puzzle, a thing that does not help is having someone else there going, what are you doing? I don't think that was my tone. Why? What are you doing? <laughs> no. Okay. No, not oh. like, okay, I just want to understand what you think you're doing. <laughs> oh, no. Just explain to me your logic right now. Okay. No, this is this is not my my intent. I'm feeling I'm feeling a lot like Tim right now. Because we're gonna do the show, I was just trying to get a sense of you know what what you're thinking, trying to get you like do a think aloud about what exactly you're thinking so that I could figure out where your mind is so we could have something to talk about. I was mad at you for like I'm really having a... 90% of the time I was playing this game. <laughs> a real Tim experience. Oh, poor you. <laughs> All right. Want, if I could turn back time. No, no, we're done. If I Thank you for listening to way. Never Was a Gamer. This has been another episode. If you liked it, you can rate you. and review us on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you listen to us. 
For more information about the show and episodes and everything else you need, go to neverwasagamer.com. You can follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. And don't sing anymore because we can't pay share for the rights to that song. I, I, I'm pleased to know that you think that my singing is so good that it's going to be picked up by an algorithm. <laughs> okay, thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next time when we play another game that mines some old genres oh, for boy. new ideas. Spelunky. Because negotiating mounting frustration with the persistent desire for just one more run is an essential part of being a gamer. <laughs> <laughs>